Hey everybody, this is Greg, and before we get started with the podcast, I want to give a quick shout out to two of our sponsors. The first is a company that is very close to my heart, Dominar Studios. They're the makers of the Cloud Agent Suite. Their flagship product, Cloud CMA, is used by over 500,000 real estate professionals all across the country, and their customers have published over 15 million Cloud CMA reports. Also check out CloudMLX, their front-end-of-choice solution, which won Inman News' Most Innovative Technology Award and has crossed over 200,000 MLS members under site license. You can find out more at cloudagentsuite.com. Also, I'm excited to announce the Notorious VIP, a premium subscription service from Rob Hahn, also known as the Notorious ROB. Membership gives you subscriber-only content, both written and recorded, that is unavailable anywhere else. The difference between the Notorious ROB blog and the Notorious VIP is that VIP focuses on research and analysis, while the ROB blog focuses on commentary and op-ed. Notorious VIP is for those in organized real estate that want to go a few layers deeper. Please visit Notorious-ROB.com to find out more. I'll put a link to both sponsors in the show notes. Also, if any of our listeners are interested in sponsoring the Industry Relations Podcast, please drop me a line at gregrobertson at gmail.com. Hey, thanks for listening. And now, on with the show. Everybody. Welcome to a very, very special edition of Industry Relations. This is Industry Relations Live with your co-host. This is Rob Han, the Notorious ROB. And I'm actually looking at his picture. Uh, Greg Robertson's on the other line. Greg, how you doing? Hello, Rob. Hola, Greg. See, I didn't, you didn't get me this time because I can see you. See, that's, that's the difference. We have to use these uh, video things. So, yeah, this is kind of neat. I mean, we see people are starting to join up. Really want to welcome everybody. Say thank you for for uh, this experiment, experimenting along with us. I think what I'm going to do is just kind of logistically let y'all know kind of how what we're thinking. This isn't. This was not a giant Brady Bunch Zoom kind of thing because I figured everyone's tired of Zoom, although it is like a lifesaver. It's more like well, I think we're using webinar software, but we see everybody. And we, we definitely want to talk to you. We'd rather hear you talk than, than us. Since the whole idea is, you know, uh, Greg and I kind of went on this wild goose chase about what happens next. We thought it would be more interesting to hear from, you know, you all, our listeners, as to what you guys think would happen next. So having said that, if you, uh, if you have a question, if you want to talk, you could just raise your hand. There should be a little button somewhere on your, your board there. Just raise your hand and we'll uh, bring you in. Let's see. So with that said, I think what we wanted to kick this off was just kind of review what Greg and I thought was going to happen next, and then introduce a new topic, because we didn't really talk about the MLS very much. And then uh, hopefully you guys, by that time, will have like all kinds of things you want to talk about. So if there are any problems, any hiccups, this is the very first time we're even trying this. So we, uh, we ask for your, your forbearance. Forbearance a big word in real estate right now. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. So over to you, Mr. Robertson. What are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think last time we ran the gamut about just starting from a high level, like uh, what is going to happen culturally? And I think this has been talked about, like, are we going to shake hands? Are we going to go to concerts and sporting events and things of that nature to something that's more industry specific as in, uh, what's the market going to be like? Is this going to be a U-shaped recovery or a V-shaped recovery? Are open houses going to be a thing in the past? Are they going to be different? You know, there's probably, you know, myriad of answers. What's the market going to be like? Is it 
Are we going to switch to a, a seller's to a buyer's market? Is there going to be a recession? If, if so, how long? You know, all sorts of things. Or what are the opportunities? And I think in any, in any environment like this, there's always winners and losers. Who are the winners here? Who are the, who are the losers here? So all, all, all sorts of things, for sure. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, you know, we did this thing when we were doing it. That we were going to talk about best case scenario. Remember that? Yeah. Because otherwise, it would get real dark. So, you know, we did our thing with, what do we think is like the best case scenario, ideal outcome? Uh, I think for this one, you know, there's no requirement like that for, especially for attendees. Maybe you and I could just loosen that up too. It's like, what do we actually think is going to happen, right? As opposed to like a, you know, overly optimistic scenario. So from that standpoint, you know, until we start calling people, I did think it was interesting. I think, you, you know, I was on this uh, NAR MLS mid-year MLS exec session yesterday. And I think you mentioned you are on a CMLS panel or CMLS discussion, right? What do you guys talk about the CMLS one? Well, they were talking about the, um, there's, you know, discussions about a policy of, as, as far as making it mandatory for MLSs to give brokers their own data at a reasonable or at least at a cost or their uh, a broker's designee. So I was, I hadn't followed all that, you know, very closely. So I was just getting kind of warmed up on that. And really when I went into the breakout room, a lot of us started talking more about this kind of work from home and how that's affecting MLS and if you can right. let the genie out of the bottle there. So it was right. all over the place basically. Okay. That's, I mean, I think uh, my session was, yeah, I think I was meant to be the, uh, you know, the provocative one. So I, I tried, but there's not a whole lot to be provocative about really. So let's, let's actually start there and then maybe we'll grab somebody on the call who's far more knowledgeable. So right now, not necessarily best case scenario. What do you think comes next? What have, what comes after for the MLS? Right. For me, I mean, so I think when I talk about MLS, it's always, you know, you have the core concept of the cooperation and compensation. I don't know if there's anything that changes there. I think that you could also talk about membership levels. Some MLSs, you know, everybody has a different structure as far as cost is concerned. So I don't think that the membership of the MLS is really tied to uh, productivity to start off with, right? So I don't think yeah. it's going to take a big hit there, so to speak. But then there's also the, I think they're also just like a business like mine where, you know, we're starting to see this work from home thing. Like I said, I mean, there's a lot of employees that we can see that's working. Zillow announced, I think famously, Rich Barton said that they're going to keep this going through uh, 2021 because he's completely changed his mind on the work from home right. type of thing. So we'll, we'll kind of see, I think that kind of uh, evolve into the MLS work, workplace at least, right? Just okay, so... Let, let, let me uh, let me get to pin you down a little bit, all right? I remember last time when you and I talked, we talked about cash flow. We talked about how this is not a real estate problem. It's a, you know, government, uh, you know, shutdown problem. So everything for brokers, agent teams, agents, is going to be how much cash do you have in the bank, right? And how much cash flow do you have? Cash, cash, cash. We know there are some 600 plus MLSs. You know, and I know some of them are very well capitalized. They're very, very healthy. A lot of them are not. So having said that, though, MLSs are local monopolies, so they don't have the same type of competitive pressures. So three years from now, okay, three years, how many MLSs are there in the United States? Well, I guess, so what I hear, the, the stats that I remember from 3360 were uh, 585 MLSs and that 400 of those MLSs had less than 400 members, right? So. Mm -hmm. That, that means to me there's still some consolidation to go, but 
you know, combining those types of things, uh, those kind of entities is, is a pretty tough challenge uh, to get to that kind of, those kind of smaller levels here, right? So I think, I don't want to say the easy ones have been picked off so far, but uh, what I would look more towards are these initiatives like, I think something was recently announced about MLS Aligned and there's MLS Grid, there's the CDP thing that uh, is going on out there. So more of those types of uh, solutions or hybrid solutions of a consolidation. But I don't, I don't, you know, how much, I think it'll shrink some three years from now. Yeah. Try to get you to commit to a number here. But then we're going to, I'm going to try to drag like Clinton because, you know, speaker of T360. Yeah. Well, it's been, it's, it's gotten a lot of momentum over the years. So, you know, maybe I could go on a limb and say, maybe get that closer to 500 instead of 585. Huh. Okay. So in three years, we'll have 500 MLSs. Sure. Okay. Uh, let's try and bring Clint in, uh, you know, because if people aren't going to raise their hands, we're, we're going to recruit them. How's okay. it going? Good. How are you, man? I'm well. Thanks for, for joining us. So same question to you. What comes next for the MLS from your perspective? Are you, you think, still kind of thinking focused on the consolidation? No, just anything. What comes next? Yeah, um, and numbers-wise, we're actually showing closer to 565 right now. So the 500 would be less of a, a you know jump that Greg was just talking about. You know, I think we're looking at and exploring the opportunities of whether or not you know with the the, the way things have played out over the last several months, whether or not you know people have really understood the importance of scaling, the ability to move quickly, agility. And then even to your point, Rob, in terms of, you know, financial well-being and not just to endure, but, you know, actually excel through these types of opportunities where you can jump on a wave. Like I think, you know, I've heard both of you say, and I've heard it elsewhere, that we're really picking up in terms of the pace and the cadence of adopting things that we probably should have done five years ago. And so to really turn around and, and monetize that, it means that you have to be, like you say, well-funded and, and, you know, not just skimming by with your your reserves, but rather positioned to go after solutions aggressively. So, so I would, I would say, you know, in terms of that, I think you're going to see some scaling down more partnership opportunities. And ultimately my hope is, is that greater consolidation of the data more importantly than anything, because right now knowing and understanding how these, all the markets across the country are going to recover collectively would have huge value. Okay. So let's, uh, let's try and value down three years from now, how many MLSs? I could see us getting down to below 500, so a little more aggressive than Greg, but I don't think it's exorbitant. And, and ultimately, those 400 that you continue to mention, Greg, how many of them truly um, you know, function in a rural, small town environment that if we had their data sets you know, and they were collaborative in that manner, would it really matter how many organizations there are? Right, so yeah. Less than 500 is like 50? It's like 250? What, what do you think? <laughs> range. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm closer to probably 450. All right. We may have to come back to you. Mr. Mosey. Yes, sir. Hey, sir. So thanks for joining us. Uh, same, same thoughts on you. Like what comes next for the MLS and how many will there be in three? Well, I believe what uh, Clint just said is the greater consolidation of the data is the most important thing that we can uh, accomplish. And I'm a more, more aggressive uh, type. When you asked Greg and he came back with sub 500, I thought, what a weenie. No, like, <laughs> and in fact, I was. Uh, it's the best thing anybody's called me as a weenie in a long time. There, <laughs> I was thinking somewhere uh, around 300, and, and yeah. 
actually, that's uh, probably wishful thinking, but I would believe definitely under 400. And to Clint's point as well about, uh, you know, some of these uh, 400 or fewer member organizations operating in uh, some geography that's miles from anywhere, and they're quite happy being in that location, separate from everybody, and feeling no need to go forward. It it still leaves on the table all those issues about uh, their financial strength, their ability to uh, uh, weather the storms, provide the higher level of service, continue to act as the point of uh, sale or the service center for the uh, for the region they serve, but leverage the uh, relationship around the data so they can uh, they can provide more so that they elevate the value of the realtor. I couldn't agree more with that, John. I think that's a, a great point of collaborating, working together and leveraging, again, those large, larger resources. And then ultimately, you know, it may be that, that some of the larger entities, when they do have a better network and are more well positioned, just say, OK, that's fine. If you want to exist there, exist there. But we'll provide services there, too. And if folks want to you know, choose, then choose. So yesterday, one of the things I mentioned uh, was this is just my feeling on it. One of the things that comes next to me is that the idea of like the local MLS might be questioned because the real estate industry, like everybody in America, has spent the last two months working over telephone and Zoom and things like this. And my thought was, and this was based on like interviews with agents and teams in the field, my thought was that the notion that you have to have tech support, the MLS support, in an office three miles from you is potentially fading and that people might be totally fine with as long as you're getting the service from getting it from a call center or from somebody who's, you know, hundred miles away. And we didn't really get to talk about that, but in light of what you guys have talked about, the rural markets, you know, there are 400 people kind of in the middle of nowhere. I mean, is there a reason why we couldn't use Zoom to service someone like that? Well, you don't even have to use that. I mean, there's been markets like I can think of like Metrolist out in, uh, in Central Valley, California, right? I mean, they've got, you know, the largest geographic wise of membership, right? So, and they, you know, satellite MLS offices, they've always been around, right? So isn't that the point of what oh. ARMLS and Metro MLS have done? I mean, prior to this with their kind of collaborative efforts of, you know, they're not geographically related in markets, but they're basically sharing different services and support teams. So they were yeah, I mean, that's Wisconsin and, of, and Arizona, right? Which is crazy. Right. Right. So they're yeah. like ahead of the curve on this a little bit. And and Deanna, I always thought that, I mean, you guys have been doing a lot down there, but I always thought like having lived in uh, South Florida that, you know, South Florida and New Jersey should, MLS should hook up, man, because there's a lot of crossover there. Yeah, that's an understatement. Um, we, we definitely are like the, the mini Northeast, I think, over here. So um you know, you never know what's in the future. But, you know, in South Florida, we, you know, really collaborate with all the surrounding MLSs. I and mean, we all data share, you know, the data shares in the MLS platform. So it's not like the members have to log out and go into, a, you know, another you know MLS platform to sign in. So we really do make it, you know, very easy uh, down here in South Florida for our subscribers to operate across all of uh, Southeast Florida. And then it was also like... Um... Adris, right? I mean, CRMLS, I don't know if he wants to say anything, but Southern California and now um, New Orleans, right? I mean, uh, Louisiana, I should say, right? So uh, that's a big jump as well, right? Another kind of model, if you want to comment Adris or not, calling on the spot. <laughs> Tim, what do you think? 
I've always thought that the number of MLSs that exist was the wrong question. The right question has always been how many databases exist and are those databases capable of talking to each other and providing some sort of backup for each other. So if you think about it in terms of what CRMLS is building, what RMLS is building, what we've got with common data platforms stretching from Minnesota to Southern Missouri. If you start to think about those as sort of the epicenters for larger databases that transmit cooperation and compensation across the boundaries of the organizations, then you can start to see a future where maybe there's five or 10 databases that span the nation. And eventually those databases talk to each other and can provide services cross-platform to that. After that, who cares how many MLSs there are? They're, they're service centers. They're there to service the realtors, the software that they use in the local environment. I'll tell you who cares though, Tim, right? Which is the brokers and agents who have to pay. They're the ones who care. Yeah, but at the end of the day, if they have access to the data, then they tr have truly have MLS of choice and they can pick the service center that they like the best to service them and pay one service center. Huh. So why would they I mean, care? Well, if we get to that point, because yeah, that's gonna struggle. But that, that's a that's really good point. So let me ask you this. And in your judgment, how many MLS databases are there today? And how many will there be in three years? Well, if there's 575 MLSs and there's only a handful of organizations that share databases, then there's probably 550 MLSs, <laughs> MLS databases out there. You know, and I probably know more about common data platform than any others, and Mosey can certainly chime in, but there's one database that stretches from Minnesota through Iowa, touches part of Wisconsin, half of Missouri and about a third of Illinois. So it's mm -hmm. touching five states. There's nine organizations, I think, Mosey. So six MLSs in Iowa, yours, mine. So maybe it's eight MLSs. But those are all still independent companies with their own service centers. They just all share a database. And they all transmit cooperation and compensation across it based on where you're licensed. Yeah. So I think it's a model for the future, and I think there will be people that improve upon the model, that do it a little differently. But in the end, you'll start to see more data consolidation than you will MLS consolidation. Maybe not in the short term, but in the long term, I think that's the route we'll take. So three years from now, how many MLS databases do you envision? Ideally, there'd be about 10. But three years from now, there'll probably still be about you know 300 or 400 because these smaller ones are very hard to get to. Their isolation isn't because of where they're at in geography. It's because they shut the door in your face and don't really want to explore the conversation. They're quite happy being on their own island. And those are going to be the hardest ones to reach. And you might say they're the least important to reach. But I think in terms of service and in having that service stretch across boundaries, they're, they're growing in importance and they're starting to get recognized for that. And I think MLSs uh, that have the financial capability are starting to treat them a little differently. And, and put some uh, some skin on the table, I think. Well, I mean, you know, anything that makes it easier, I mean, you know, I'm a big front end of choice proponent. So, I mean, I'm hoping for a world like that where you can kind of come with whatever front end you want to whatever, you know, whatever database you are is out there. So I hope that that's where it ends up. But um, I know the politics are always tougher than any, than the technology for sure. Yeah. We'll kind of see that. Um, no, I see that. Georgia uh, had a question, so we've activated. Georgia, are you there? I'm here. Hi. So I saw your comment, and I thought maybe it'd be cool to just kind of give us your take on that. 
Well, my comment was from the earlier discussion, you know, just about, you know, distances should not be a problem anymore. I mean, the current situation, but my comment was the current situation has proven without a doubt that we are underutilizing telecommunications at, mm -hmm. at, at the highest level. So I think our industry has a really great ability to grow, whether it's the MLS side and tech support or, you know, just general real estate. I mean, I see a lot of the ability to improve on ourselves just now that we were forced to telecommunicate and now we've been forced to learn these skills. And every day I, I come up with a new, a new way that I can implement it when we do go back to normal. Yeah. And I know Georgia, but Georgia, you know what? Most of our listeners probably don't. Do you want to quickly introduce yourself? Oh, sure. My name is uh, Georgia Barbara. I am one of the brokers for an independent company in Las Vegas called Urban Nest. And I'm also the current chair of our MLS for the association. Thank you very much. So uh, with that, I mean, I kind of want to use you as a diving, you know, stepping off point for the other things besides MLS. You know, we just want to start off with MLS, but we could honestly spend the next four hours just talking to MLS, which will, you know, well, it's not going to get to kind of what we want. Right? So let's just talk about that from your perspective as somebody who's, you know, broker, uh, you're in the field and you're also on the MLS committee. What do you see happening next to real estate as a well? whole? What comes after? After COVID, how, how do we want to define that? Okay. Well, I mean, we were lucky in Las Vegas. We were considered essential services. My office, we've never closed. We didn't lay off anybody. We just had to get a lot freaking better at, at how we did business and how we worked with our agents. And actually, I have to hop off in about 10 minutes because I'm doing quarterly business planning with our agents. And instead of in person, it's now, you know, over Zoom. As an industry, I think we dropped about 40% as far as um, production across the board. I'm, I'm nervous. I don't have an answer of what this is going to look like. I'm just trying to figure out what I do know and what's that that's going to mean for the future. I know, you know, Vegas, we crashed so hard in 2009. You know, it was always us, Detroit, and somewhere in Florida trading right. for the two and three spot of the worst REOs. But I knew then that residential led and commercial followed, but I'm really thinking commercial is going to lead in the direction of where our industry is gonna go and residential is going to follow that. So the action reaction is going to be a little bit opposite. So I'm just trying to keep an eye on the commercial side of things, you know, keeping in touch with my commercial friends because I do, I feel that, that they are going to be the indicator of where residential is going. What do you mean by that? Because to me, I mean, I think, you know, with all this work from home stuff, I mean, I think a lot of companies are gonna realize they have too much office space. Yes. And then and then homes kind of take the last thing. It's like I know from working at home, it's like, you know, I wish I could configure my house a little bit differently. So that that says to me more, you know, mobility and housing. And for commercial, it's a it's a bad sign. Exactly. Well, th well, that's the point. Good, bad or ugly result. I feel that the commercial market is going to lead and residential will feel it about six to nine months after. We've got a lot of small businesses here that I don't necessarily think are going to open back up. 
yes, we've got oh, the strip. Oh, I see what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yes, we've got the strip. You know, I know they're already preparing to open, and, and they'll get back to max capacity. I'm not worried about our, our Las Vegas strip. They're resilient. <laughs> but there is so much else that we have. I know a lot of people think that we, you know, we all live and work in casinos when you live in Vegas, but we don't. And there is amazing communities that aren't going to recover as fast on the commercial side. And so right. I think that's so, where we're going to take our hit. So from your perspective, this is a question for everybody. And I'm, I'm going to start calling on people if I don't see hands. But uh, do you see a U-shaped recovery, a V-shaped recovery, L-shaped? I mean, like, when do you think everything comes back then? I don't even feel that we felt the financial hurt yet. I mean, because we're really only six to seven weeks in. I think we're going to see, I would say probably closer to a J curve up in the next quarter to two quarters where we're going to dip below a little farther before we get back up to equal. Oh, a new letter. I, I would turn a V and U, now I'm J. I love that, Georgia. I love that. <laughs> So I'm going to X curve. We're going to have an X curve. <laughs> the J. I, I love that. The J curve. Nice. What did we talk about, Greg? We ended up, I, we said V curve, right? Because we were forced to say best case scenario. Yeah. Yeah. So if it's not yeah. that, then you tell me. I mean, what do you, what do you, what do you really think? Are we going to be or you? What? For, for what do I think? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, the, the U is like it's a flatter bottom. It'll take us a lot longer to get to whatever. I mean, George is saying 40% off on uh, transactions. I think, you know, I was I was thinking, you know, that or even in, even more for the end of the year. So if you look at the average number of transactions happening, well, you know, I don't know how to think of this because, you know, it's not like this is trading stocks. I mean, people have to move. They have to move regardless of a virus or not. I was just talking to one of the higher ups at Redfin earlier this morning, and you know, it's not like people are moving because they want a bigger house, or they're moving because of this or that. It's they're moving because they have to move, right? And and yeah. how much how much of the market is people moving because they're trading places or you know doing those kind of things and more discretionary kind of moving? I don't know how much of that five point five a year is is that, right? So yeah. you know, maybe she's saying forty percent off. I was thinking like 50%, maybe it's smaller because, you know, when you got to go, you got to go. But is that what happened, you know, like a U-shape, a J-curve, like she said, a v, you know, another do you have a quick bounce back or it's going to take longer? I think it's going to take, it, it's going to be quicker than most people think, right? I mean, there's still a lot of demand. There's a lot of now pent-up demand. I don't, I don't see it you know, dragging on too long. I think once we get back and, and again, like George is saying, same thing in California, it's been an essential service. So it hasn't been too crazy. I know knowing some information about the Arizona market also, it's still still pretty doing pretty well as well. So um, yeah, I think, uh, but I do agree with her that it's only six to eight weeks in, we don't really know the effect yet. Right. So mm -hmm. that's a little bit, that J thing, a J curve is really interesting. All right, and uh, I think we have a comment here from Joshua Lepore to on this topic. Joshua, oh, this is going to be yeah. I know yeah. where Josh come from. Josh, you there? I'm here. Hey, man. Maybe a quick intro for who you are, and then uh, tell us uh, what you were what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, so this is Joshua. I'm from Data Loft Consulting. I think a, a good indicator is if you're watching some of the largest home buyers in America. Many of them have paused, whether that's Open Door, Zillow, Invitation Homes, American Homes for Rent, 
these people that are buying thousands of homes have all paused. That's interesting, right? Because you can, you can look at Arizona where there has been, it seems like it's doing fine. The numbers are telling you that it's somewhat level. But you look at the people who are buying the most homes who have the most risk and they're stopping. And so what does that mean? What does it mean to you? What do you, what do you think it means? These are people that are smarter than me who have a lot more money at risk than I do. And yeah. so I see that as a red flag. Okay, so for you, V, W, L, J, what, what, what do you think the recovery curve is like? Or maybe we never recover. What, what's your take? I definitely don't think we're at the bottom. So more J curve? Do we ever recover? Uh, yeah, eventually. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to put Joshua down for a J curve. So let, let me ask you this, Joshua, because we have this conversation sometimes. I mean, do you think we're going to enter in a buyer market next year? Absolutely. Right. So you think we're going to go from a seller's market to a buyer market? You think this year or next year? 2021. Yeah. So, and how far off do you think housing prices are going to be? <laughs> <laughs> Greg is uh, going to make some investment decisions based on your answer. So, <laughs> I mean, I think, that, I think that there's more factors at play than when it comes to, you know, buyer, seller, and, you know, inflation. Okay. I, I think that's like I'm playing golf with you. Just you know, make it make a prediction. In front of all of our colleagues, I'll say ten percent. Ten percent. Okay. Ten percent. Okay. So not I just, quite two thousand eight. Yeah, I just can't see anything in my neighborhood, you know, being uh, cut down ten percent. I just don't see that. I mean, here's the thing, Greg. The ten percent in your neighborhood, and I don't, you know, you know your neighborhood way better than I, but I know you're in Orange County. The jungle market's frozen. It's like non-existent. So if you can't get jumbo loans, if those don't happen, how do you not have home prices come down, right? At least 10%. Well, it'd have to come down more than 10% for the jumbo to be uh, <laughs> I understand. A lot of areas. Like, in other words, buyer demand is going through. It's, go it's going to be effective, right? Even if people have, you know, the type of income, they may not have, if they can't get a jumbo mortgage. Now, who knows? That could get fixed. Like the government is supposedly working on that. The Fed's all on it and GSCs and all that. But... All right. Well, okay. let's do this. Like in the in the maybe in the chat or the questions. I mean, who thinks it's going to be a buyer's market next year? I mean, how many people think it's going to be a buyer's market or put buyer seller? I mean, I can't. I mean, to me, I, I I still think it's. I think it's just still supply and demand. I think there's so few houses out there that that's yeah. just going to kind of help things as far as you know keeping this a seller's market. Uh, it's just a supply and demand inventory problem, right? Inventory is still so low. It was it was low going into this. It's probably with all the pent up demand and everything else kind of choking it off. It's 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 going to be even further. I know that you know some people say, well, a lot of people had some money in the stock market. They lost a lot of the stock market. Well, that you know stock market's kind of almost all the way back from what it was. So I don't I don't see that right. So I'm yeah. seeing some stuff in here. Buyer still a seller. Seller. Yeah, no, I'm seeing mostly seller. seller. I mean, Katie thinks buyer market. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's gonna be a buyer's market either. We talked, we kind of touched on this last time, and the reason is because inventory was so constrained going into this. In order for things to become a buyer's market, we have to have a pretty prolonged recession or a pretty desperate, you know, depression. Yeah. So, so Josh, I mean, defend yourself on that. I mean, if 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 Rob's saying, you know, he doesn't think it's going to be because it's going to take a prolonged recession. Why, why do you think it's going to happen so soon this year? If you have banks who are freezing HELOCs, 
because they don't know where it's going to go. And the people who need that money can no longer get a HELOC. Like, what is their option? It's going to be to sell their house. So the HELOC market is why it goes to a buyer's market? It's people who need money. And you have, like, you know, nearing record unemployment. You have banks. Those people who would get money normally would probably try and take equity out of their homes. Banks have stopped that, or some have. And so their only option is to sell. And it's all being delayed by forbearance. So, yeah. Okay. So, well, it's super so murky. Josh, Josh was the most negative of the three of us, which surprised me because I'm, I'm, I usually have a title, you know, like Josh taking that from me. Pretty awesome. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so, um, there is a comment I kind of want to follow up on. Talk, are you, uh, are you able to talk? Hi there. Um, yeah, well, I'm in Toronto, which is a, a bit of a different space for a variety of different reasons. What's happening in Canada as far as uh, response, COVID spreading, et cetera, is quite different than that of the U.S. Canada's also unique because, um, and I'm chewing, so I apologize as you guys called them on me. <laughs> Making us hungry. My, my <laughs> comment my comment with respect to becoming more of a more of a balanced market as opposed to just simply a buyer versus seller in Toronto specifically is because we have a very hot market. Now, here's the problem. Who is actually losing their jobs? Hmm, okay. that, right. that is a key factor. Who actually Hospita not the hospitality, years. restaurants? You uh, got it. Yeah. Not, got not it. typically so those, homeowners, really. Exactly. Exactly. So so I think it's a confidence that would be problematic and therefore um, reducing the amount of demand. However, anecdotally in Toronto, because yes, hospitality people we're renting anyway. We're not really seeing a, a quashing of demand right now because they cannot afford it, but rather they're concerned about the future of Canada as a whole. So demand continues to be there. As soon as there's a signal that we've yes, yes, we've recovered and that we are in good shape, the buyers are just waiting. They're eagerly waiting. You now, just body you just body slams Josh. He's probably just <laughs> reeling right now. Oh, Here. I know, but again, but Canada's also different because the majority of her GDP is based on the health of our real estate industry. Our real estate industry makes up, by leaps and bounds, the majority of our GDP output. Are so, you serious? Yes. And so this is leasing, rents, um, and sales. In Toronto alone, we were expecting to garnish $800 million, Toronto, in simply land tax fees. So there's a lot of incentive for our government to prop up, as we have already seen, our real estate industry. Um, not I don't know what it is where real estate falls with, with the U.S., but again, a very different market, which I think is going to help communicate confidence and uh, spur the industry. That's just my thought. Yeah. It could be totally wrong. I didn't, I didn't know Canadian GDP was that heavily in those. Okay, so yes. let me ask something because I, you know, by the way, just a quick intro would be nice because I know most people may not know who you are. Oh, okay, good point. Um, I'm an executive with a luxury brokerage out in Toronto. I am a lawyer by trade and have history and and some experience in the private equity world where um, we bought and sold medical office buildings across Canada. So that right. is who I am. All right. So let me ask you this now. Just give me the Canadian answer and then maybe we'll think about this for the U.S. answer as well. If sure. real estate is such a giant part of the Canadian GDP and the Canadian government, as well as all of your provincial governments, as well as all of your cities are mm -hmm. spending like drunken sailors right now because of this virus, yeah. this emergency. Mm -hmm. Don't you think, I mean, we then you have to expect the taxes are going to have to go up on real oh, estate in Canada? I think... 
Okay, it'll be location specific. Toronto, yes, because I think we actually, Rob, talked about this. And, and the reason why Toronto is because we are bleeding more money as a result of people not using our infrastructure right now than other places that are less dependent upon things like public transit for a source of income. So yes, Toronto, we will continue to see that and we'll likely property taxes increase. There will be more federally imposed taxes by way of, of income tax. Um, okay. There is talk as well about reduce or changing how capital gains are taxed so that it is taxed like income, which is not a good thing. So we're, we're seeing it stratified across all various ways in order to make the revenue back. So then I'll turn this to the American audience and we'll start with Greg because no one else is active. I mean, do we see something like that coming and does that affect the real estate market? Does it affect buyer demand? In other words, if property taxes double, if property taxes go up by a huge amount because, you know, government has to somehow pay for all the spending that they're doing. Now, the spending now, like you've got to do it, right? I mean, it's just, it is what it is. Like, what do you think, Greg? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, the fact that, I remember seeing some chart and how this bailout has compared to the previous bailout back in the Great Recession. It, it was like, you know, one was here and the other one was way up there, right? I mean, it just it just dwarfs what kind of bailouts we did before. So yeah, no, the the, the tax man is coming, right? Um, for sure. And how and, and of course, property tax is a big revenue stream for cities, areas, areas. And all that, so they're gonna. Yeah. You know, we have the PPP loans, we have the real estate stuff, everything. I mean, so there's a lot out there that um that they're coming for for sure. All right, but if that happens, would that change buyer demand? You know, what I'm saying if the financials of buying a house changes because of property tax at the local, state, maybe even at the federal level. I mean, I know we don't have a federal tax, you know, property tax here, but. Now, granted, the U.S. our GDP is not as dependent. I think it's only about a third of the economy, right? So it's not like Canada, but still, I'm going to talk about a pretty substantial burden. I mean, wouldn't that change the buyer demand equation? Well, yeah. I mean, here locally with Prop 13, I mean, you know, it's 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 an issue, right? I mean, you have a lot of people that don't want to move because uh, if they go buy a new place, it'll be at a new tax rate. So, I mean, that that. Obviously, those things are already. I mean, we have things like that in place right now that affect purchasing power for sure. Okay, so let's talk about Prop. Do you expect Prop 13 to still be around in a couple of years? In a couple of years, yes. Okay, why? In the California, especially, it's just so hard to kind of make things change in that regard. But you know, it's the government, so the government can a lot of times do whatever they want to do. So we'll see. <laughs> All right. Well, if, if you guys have an opinion on whether buyer demand would be affected by, you know, taxes or government action, I mean, I'd love to hear about it. So that's that's a so this is turning a little grim. This this actually helps well, us some positive silver yeah, lining. Yeah. Well, you know, right? what I want to talk about is like let's get even like a just to a kind of hand to hand combat level. Sure. Because uh, we were talking about this cultural wise. I mean, yes. it, who would want to chime in about? I know that we had a big disagreement on this, Rob, of, of open houses. Open houses. Yeah. Yeah. Will open houses change? My I opinion mean, is, if I'm selling my house, will I have an open house? Yes, I will have an open house. And I think you're nuts. Anybody else disagree with that? I mean, anybody else want to chime in on that? Raise your hand or start talking if your mic is unmuted. Yeah. Greg, this is Tim Dane again. Missouri, Missouri ends at stay at home the 4th, so Monday. And in the last 
six days since the announcement, we received about 50 or so broker emails asking us to open the open house feature back up. So yep. the demand is going to return swiftly for open houses. I think it will change though. I think it all depend on the, uh, the sellers and how comfortable that they are. The virtual is here to stay. The live stream is here to stay. Yeah. Um, how, yeah. how much of a percentage of it that takes up? I don't know, but I think it probably becomes optional for a period of time, but there's no doubt that the, the in-person won't be replaced because of this. And I think if some of the predictions on a buyer's market come true, you know, any sort of friction you put on the ability to sell your home, like, oh, I don't want people in here, or they got to put a hazmat suit on, whereas there are another house that has looser restrictions. People trying to sell their house at one point are going to have to like say, hey, I've got to do what everybody else is doing. I've got to compete. And let me ask Tim a question. Tim, the 50 that you mentioned, right? Yeah. How does that compare year over year to the normal pre, you know, before COVID market? Well, I mean, pre-COVID, I didn't have 50 brokers asking yeah, me to no turn the open house feature back on. Yeah. But to give you an idea of the scale, those 50 brokers probably represent over half of our membership because they're the primarily the largest brokers wanting us to turn it back on. It'll be interesting because we cover two states and Illinois doesn't come out until the 30th of the month, whereas Missouri's coming out of it on Monday. So we'll have sort of half the state in and half the state out, but the feature itself has to be enabled across the whole platform because it's not that sophisticated yet. So it'll be interesting. I have a feeling we'll see a lot of people doing it, even though they probably shouldn't. Okay, so these 50 brokers have simply asked you to turn the feature on. They haven't said... We are going to close 500 open houses. Well, I mean, but no, hold on, Rob. Why are they asking? I mean, if- this is Katie again, and just throwing my I two cents in. <laughs> so what Tim just said is key. It's like whether they should do it or not, there are going to be people that start holding open houses as soon as you tell them that they can. I mean, you're starting to see people who are contesting their right to get out and do things that they want to do. So it's going to come back. And I think maybe for some people it'll be a little bit more discretionary at first, but like Greg said, if it if it gets down to the point where, you know, it's two pillars pitted against each other to get this buyer, they're gonna do what they have to do to sell their house. The more interesting cultural change, I mean, for years when you've shown up at open houses in the nicer homes, you've always had to put booties on, right? Cover your shoes so you can walk through the house. I think that some of the normal practices will now include masks and gloves. So invest in those companies if you if you were looking for a stock. But uh, I think that's the thing that's probably here to stay, not with every home, but with a, a number of homes, you're going to be asked to not only put booties on, but throw on a pair of gloves and throw on a mask while you're in the house as well. Well, are you going to have to put on a mask to go to a, a White Snake concert, uh, Tim, or what? Well, I wouldn't go to a White Snake concert, first of all, but uh, <laughs> if I did, I might wear a mask anyway. <laughs> hey, so pre-COVID, I'm curious, like, yeah, pre-COVID so, White Snake concert might might actually uh, require. So I'm curious. Anybody on the call who is a broker or agent, I would love to hear from you if you are planning on doing open houses the minute that they are allowed. There's not just the ability, but you're planning on. I think the way I'm kind of thinking about it is. I guess we'll find out right, as, as the states are lifting. I think Texas has already lifted, uh, Tennessee. So if they start doing open houses. The flip side of that, though, is I kind of want to see how many are actually being done, right? Because open house, if it's meant to be a marketing you know, method, because that's what the idea is, right? 
then it has to be effective. And if open houses are less effective because buyers won't come to them, then do you still keep doing those? I just don't, the premise of buyers not going to them is just flawed. I mean, people might be doing it now because they have to, but it's a house. How are you not, if you have the opportunity to go see it first before you buy it, who is not doing that? People who are I mean, afraid of uh, stepping out of their home without a mask. Yeah, again, I mean, they got to step into another, they've got to step into it at one point, right? It's not like, okay, now I'm going to live there virtually. I'm going to go in no, the living room now. But there's have, a big you know, difference on wheels and shit. And walk, but you know. we talked about, Greg, there's a huge difference between an open house and I'm really interested in this house, I'm going to go tour it. Right? If I do it virtually, right? Because that's the whole hey, thing guys. I'm saying. I think most people are going to do it virtually. Hey, hey guys, this is Clint. So we're in Colorado and they've opened up and it's been amazing to me to watch because I'm still pretty connected to the broker community here as to how excited people were to just get back out and doing things. And so I don't think you can just focus on it from a you know client standpoint. Think about the brokers and agents, especially those that don't know any different. And so they want to immediately rush back to, to what they know and what they're comfortable with and, and aren't necessarily quickly adapting to the new climate and they don't know what else to do. So I think there'll be some of those folks that are just compelled to do it because they don't know what else to do. You're saying that they're going to do open house because that's what they've always done? Yeah, I think there'll be some of those folks that especially, you know, you go with what you know and what you're comfortable with in times of uncertainty. If you haven't put the time in to understand the technologies and, and those other things, it's it's something to do. I mean, people were immediately out showing houses, excited about it, posting about it here in Colorado. And it, it felt as if it was a release for a number of them because now they knew what to do. You know, that's a good point. I hadn't considered that. That's actually a good point. And Rob, if you look at the showing time provided that great resources for yeah. showings across the nation, if you look at that, and I was just flipping through Colorado and Texas because they were the last two that came up, you can see a definitive uptick in the number of, of open houses scheduled. Now, one might argue that they're not separating out those that are scheduled virtually or not, but you can see significant upticks every place that open houses have been sort of, or every place that the stay-at-home order has been ended. So I think that's an indicator right there. Okay, you know what? Uh, then that actually makes me feel better about things because I'm, I'm, I think my biggest worry about all of this is permanent psychological damage you know, to the whole country. So if that's not going to be the case for Americans resilient, like screw it, that's actually good news because it's not just about open houses, it's about everything else, right? It's about things yeah. like concerts, it's about casinos. You know, I mean, one of the biggest fears that I have, uh, and I know Georgia was very sort of positive about the casinos and the strip and we'll have max capacity. I, I've been very hesitant about that because I'm just not sure. But if we're, maybe, you know, maybe we're the canary coal mine. Maybe the open house numbers will kind of give us everybody an idea as to this is how Americans, just average everyday people, kind of think about this whole virus thing, right? Because if they're willing to just go to an open house, meaning it's not a house that they're necessarily particularly interested in. They just kind of want to see it. They're driving around the neighborhood. Oh, there's an open house. Let's go check it out. Uh, it's not a scheduled tour. Like I just spent the last three weeks looking at pictures and doing virtual tours. And one to three looks amazing. Let's go tour that. Open house is different from that in my mind. So let's wrap up. What have we learned? Well, I, again, I think I'm very positive. I don't think, I mean, this has been a, a challenge for the country. I think that we're very resilient. I think most people are more social animals. We like to see music. We like to see sports. We like to be social. So I'm very, I'm very optimistic about the future. In regards to the economy and everything else, I mean, 
I can definitely uh, understand and somewhat agree with. We don't know. It's been, you know, I think Georgia said that it's been six to eight weeks only, and we don't really know what we don't know yet. So we're going to have to wait a little bit while to see what happens on on that thing. But uh, overall, I'm pretty still optimistic on, on how we're going to get through this. I don't think it's happened, although the, the speed of unemployment and all those things, numbers have gone faster than anything has been out there. I don't think we, we really necessarily have to say that uh, it can make that lasting of an impression, but we'll see, right? I'm optimistic, but we'll see. All right. Uh, I think what I've learned is that I'm maybe not as optimistic as I should be because you guys are kind of talking me into this notion that Americans are way more resilient and uh, everyone's just tired of being locked at home. So once things open up, then we're all going to go back to doing everything that we did before, right? which I think is really positive, really optimistic. I hope everyone's right. The other thing I learned is that uh, we should all expect taxes to go up. <laughs> we should see property taxes. Uh, headed our way, but that it's likely not going to turn things from a low inventory seller's market to a full blown buyer's market. I don't think we're anybody's spitting that. Uh, we'll see in another two, three months, right? In other words, like Q2 is going to be kind of critical. When we open up, how we open up, what, is, what does that do? You know, does unemployment go back down? Like, you know, the 25 million or whatever number, do most of those people go back to work? You know, are there jobs still for them? Because Maybe in part because of things like PPP and you know some of the some of the government assistance that's been made available. If we see that, then I think there's a really good reason for hope and a V-shaped recovery. If on the other hand we open things up and we're still like 10 million unemployment, you know, then it might be a longer time frame. Then it might be more of a U-shape than who the hell knows. I mean, I think that's kind of what I learned from this call, which was fun. I mean, I apologize to everybody for any first-time screw-ups and you know mix-ups. I don't know if there'll be a second time, but uh, we just thought this would be fun to try, you know, especially in these uh, lockdown times. Any parting words for the audience that might be listening to the recording? Diana says cocktail time. I agree. <laughs> no, um, no, I'm, again, I hope we learn some lessons here. I don't think the lesson is, I mean, I, I get worried when I start reading about how people, well, this wasn't so bad for a few things. And, and I think the reason that it wasn't so bad is that a lot of a lot of states took the necessary measures to do stay at home things so that it didn't get so bad. And if we didn't do anything, that it would be much, much worse. So I hope I hope the country takes away that uh, these measures were a good thing and not not an overreaction and hope for a kind of a V-shaped recovery for sure. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to share your hopes and uh, and end on that because I don't want to spend another hour arguing with you. <laughs> what you just said. Hey, thanks to everybody for joining us. Uh, this was interesting from our standpoint. Hope uh, you guys found it at least somewhat you know, interesting, you know, as we fumble through things. And I believe this will be up uh, live as a recording sometime. What do you think, Brad? Next week? Yeah, hopefully next week. Yeah. yeah. And um, if you can, anybody listening, please go to like Apple. Give us a good rating, write a good comment. Um, that always helps us out on the uh, rankings for uh, the podcast. But uh, thanks again for everybody for listening and joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody. Bye now.